All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We're going to be going over to the book of Galatians this morning, the book of Galatians, so grab your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, you're going over to page 975, uh, Galatians chapter 5, page 975. All right, so in this series, we've been looking at how we relate to others. Um, this series has been just as much a surprise to me as it has been to many of you. This was not the series I, I thought we were going to go through. Um, uh, and, and as a result, we've really focused on things that, that the Spirit has just impressed on me we need to talk about, things like conflict and, and things like the, the underlying need for a baseline humility and, and, and things like communication. And, um, and here's the thing, <clears throat> as I was wrestling with it this week, the question that kept coming to my mind is, how do, we, how do we keep doing this? Like, how do we keep relating to people well? Not just like in one heroic effort. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you can just like get your nerve up and you go have your confrontational conversation or you, you, you humble yourself and you finally move into that difficult conflict and you do it with humility and you do it with gentleness. How do you keep doing it? How do you like make this the pattern of your life and not just a heroic moment in your life. Like, how do you learn to relate to people well in a consistent way? So that it actually becomes your posture instead of just a gesture. It actually becomes who you are instead of just something you've done once or twice. How do you do it for the long haul? Because it's hard, isn't it? I mean, relationships are hard. How do you not get provoked when someone is intentionally trying to provoke you? How do you not turn to anger when, when you've been kind and you've been humble and yet they're still coming at you? How do you hear the hard word that somebody speaks to you when they're speaking it in a way that is so unpleasant and hard to receive? It may be the exact thing you need to hear, but how do you stay in a posture where you can hear those things without closing your heart? How do you forgive and forgive and forgive. Many of you have made that heroic first step of forgiveness where you've tried to release people from their debt, where you've basically said to them, I'm not going to hold you accountable. God does that. I'm going to release you. I'm not going to be your judge. And then you discovered that that's not a one-time action. That the wound and the pain doesn't go away, and every time the wound and the pain comes again, you have to forgive again and again and again. How do we do this, you guys? How do we do this? All right, that's what I want to dig into. You guys ever see a picture of a person with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other? Are you familiar with this? Yes. It is a symbolic representation of how we often view our struggles, right? Because we, we view our struggles as, as basically a choice, right? I'm either going to do the good thing or I'm going to do the bad thing. Am I going to listen to the good angel Who's, who's telling me to eat broccoli, or am I going to listen to the bad angel who's telling me to eat the jelly donut, right? Which way am I going to go? Well, here's the deal, you guys. There is a very serious theological problem with this picture, and it's not just because it's of Homer Simpson. It's because this image, this way of looking at it, makes us neutral. It puts us in a position where we're neutral and we're between these two forces that are trying to lure us or seduce us one way or the other. Right? On the one hand, you've got, you've got the devil, and on the other hand, you've got Jesus. 
And they're just whispering in your ear, and which one are you going to follow? You're the neutral person in between. You're good angel and you're bad angel. And you guys, this isn't accurate at all because our hearts are not neutral. Our hearts already have a bent in their desires. You know why? Because our hearts don't naturally trust God. We don't. That's part of the sin nature we've inherited as broken humans. We don't trust God, and so our desires are bent away from God. We try to find things that only God can give in places where God doesn't give them. And that means that our greatest challenge to our relationships with other people isn't in our relationships with other people. It's in us. The greatest challenge to our being able to relate to people well isn't the people. (laughs) It's our relationship with God. Because we don't need God to simply change our behavior. We need God to transform our desires, to change our heart. And when our heart is changed, we'll relate to people differently. So let's take a look at our scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Word of the Lord. All right, the Bible uses um, terminology that we need to be careful to understand. It, it talks a lot about us being in the flesh. And there are times in the Bible where it talks about us being in the flesh, and it's just talking about us being mortal humans, right? That this is the tent in which we dwell. We are eternal beings, and, and this is, in a sense, a, a, this flesh is a temporary mortal body um, that, that I, in which I dwell and, and is essential to who I am. But often when the Scripture talks about the flesh, it's not talking about our body at all. It's a name that is given to the part of us that loves to do life apart from God. So when the Bible talks about the flesh in this sense, it's not talking about the hunk of meat at all, right? It's not talking about the body at all. It's talking about the nature inside the body that is bent toward doing life apart from God, that really wants to do life on its own. It wants to be like God, not under God. It wants to set its own rules, not obey God. It wants to seek its own glory, not God's. So in this passage, when it talks about the flesh, it's not talking about the body. 
It's talking about our desire to fulfill our Genesis 2 desires in a Genesis 3 world. I have to unpack that. (laughs) So in Genesis 1 and 2, at the very beginning of the Bible, God creates all things, right? And he declares them good. He creates something and says it's good. And he creates something else and says it's good. And finally he creates mankind and he says, behold, it is very good. It was a theological declaration of his creation, basically saying that there was a, a goodness, a harmony, a vibrancy to creation. Some theologians call it a glorious hum, where everything made its own note, but all those notes came together to make a beautiful tune. Nothing was out of tune, right? There was a a flourishing of life, a balance of life. It was life the way it was meant to be. Theologians call this period of time the, the period of shalom, a Hebrew word that means peace, balance, the flourishing of life. We have desires for shalom. We were created for it. We were created to thrive in a world of harmony. We have desires for that. We have have desires to, to, to thrive in harmony with ourselves, and yet we're conflicted with shame and guilt and self doubt and self hatred. We're designed to have harmony with others, to thrive in relationship and community, but instead we live in competition seeking to bring others down so we can make ourselves go up, seeking to silence some and and magnify others. We live in competition. We were designed to live in the flourishing of life in the presence of God, living in the overflow of His goodness and the overflow of His character and the overflow of His beauty and creativity. And instead, we see God as a cosmic killjoy, someone to be resisted and avoided, somebody to be mistrusted, instead of somebody to be celebrated. We have Genesis 2 desires. The problem is we live in a Genesis 3 world. In Genesis 3, mankind rebelled against God and said, we don't want to live in your world of shalom. We want to seek shalom on our own terms. We want to be like God. We don't want to live for your glory. We want to live for our own. We don't want to live for your your purpose. We want to live for our own. We don't want to trust you. We want to trust ourselves. We don't want to be dependent on you. We want to be like God. So we rejected God and tried to take God's place. And what ends up happening is the deep desires for shalom didn't go away. But since they can't be fed in the infinite goodness and the overflow of God's presence, we now seek to have our shalom satisfied, not in the Creator, but in the creation. Not on the giver of the good gifts, but the gifts that he's given. We look to things to be God. So instead of having our need for for glory and affirmation and love satisfied in our relationship with God, we try to find it in our accomplishments. Instead of finding our security and the power and the sovereignty and the plan of God, we try to find it in our relationships or in our bank accounts. Instead of trying to find our satisfaction, our joy, and our pleasure in the character and in the overflow of the goodness of God, we instead look to the things that He's created to meet our deep needs for pleasure, satisfaction, and joy. You guys, this is what it means to do life in the flesh. This is what it means to do life in the flesh. You are walking in the flesh when you're trying to do life without God. 
when you're trying to accomplish God's things without God's power, when you're trying to get the things God gives without going to the God who gives them. That is what it means to live life in the flesh. And as a result, it produces what Paul here says are the works of the flesh. As we are working to try to give what only God gives in ways that God doesn't give it, we produce things in this work. Take a look at verses 19 through 21. I want you to see the works of the flesh. Starting in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is not a comprehensive list. He's saying they're obvious. They're obvious. These things are, when you look for them and you know what you're looking for, you see them, right? These are the things that we do. These are the things that we produce when we're trying to experience and get God's shalom in ways that He does not give it. When we're trying to experience the life of God apart from the presence of God. You guys, when you look at the works of the flesh, they all have a few things in common. They're all self-focused, and they're all self-gratifying. They're all self-focused. It's about me, and they're all self-gratifying. They're things that, I, that are produced because I'm trying to make myself happy. I'm trying to fulfill myself. I'm trying to achieve my goal. I'm trying to live to my glory. These are the things that come out. Let me give you a few examples. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but the, the word sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea, from which we obviously get our word pornography. What, what is sexual immorality? Well, instead of sex being the seal and the celebration of covenant marriage, covenant oneness in marriage, the gift of community in marriage, the gift of oneness in marriage, instead of sex being the the seal and the celebration of that gift, it instead becomes something we turn to for personal pleasure or distraction or comfort. We look to it to do for us what it was never designed to give. Sex was designed to be the seal and celebration of covenant oneness in marriage. It was supposed to help you discover greater and deeper levels of oneness. It was supposed to take you out of yourself and and delight in another. It was supposed to deepen your relationship over the course of a lifetime with one person, discovering new and deeper and more powerful levels of intimacy. When we turn it into pornography, when we turn it into sexual immorality, it's all about us. It's not about deeper connection. It's not about deeper intimacy. It's just about pleasure. It's about distraction. It's about me. So we take God's good gift. We look to it to do for us what only God can do. And in the end, we destroy the very gift that God has given, right? The word jealousy, the Greek word zealous, from which we obviously get our, our, um, our English word zealot or to be zealous, it means to be passionate about something. And it's this strong desire for something, right? But here's the thing. Instead of being zealous about who we are, zealously joyful about the way God has wired me, zealously celebrational in the fact that I am unique and different, that God has wired me with a, with a unique personality, a unique set of gifts, and a unique set of strengths, and, and a unique set of weaknesses, right? That are, that are in fact part of God's good wiring and God's good gift in my life. Instead of being zealous about that, 
Instead, I become zealous about what other people have. I start focusing on what you have and I don't. I start trying to build myself up in a competition so that I can feel better about myself. I start trying to tear you down so that I look better in comparison. I try to take what you have or reduce what you have because I'm zealous for what you have instead of what God has given me. And instead of building contentment and joy, it fills us with resentment and discontent. We turn, we take a good gift of God, the, that gift of zealousness, that gift of, and instead of it being the magnifier of God's good gift, it becomes the magnifier of our deep, sinful need for affirmation. How about the last word, orgies? That's a fun one. Uh, the Greek word komos, okay? Greek word komos, it means to, to feast on sensual pleasure to the point of sickness, to feast on sensual pleasure to the point of sickness. It can be used of sexual behavior. It can also be used often in, in this period of time for food. Right? It would have been a good word to describe the Roman vomitoriums where they would eat so much they would make themselves sick and then throw up so that they can continue eating very much like a modern-day Ponderosa. <laughs> Why do we do these things? Why do we eat to the point of making ourselves sick? Right? We used to have a joke about it. Like, every Thanksgiving, I mean, it was a ritual, right? This is how we celebrate thankfulness. We eat till we're sick. And we would say, this is the fullest, the fuller family has ever felt. I have no idea why we said that. I don't even know what it means. But it was our way of making a joke about our gluttony, right? Kind of funny. But why do we do that? Why do we drink to the point of drunkenness? Like, beyond the point of pleasure, Beyond the point of saying, this is God's good gift, I get to celebrate. God's good gift to the glory of God, to the point of saying, I'm going to consume it to the point I make myself sick. Why do we turn to the good gifts like sexuality? And instead of celebrating them in the way God has designed, in ways that are meant to introduce us into deeper and more powerful, intimate connections, we turn them into self-centered self-focused, self-emptying patterns. Why do, we, why do we do this? Because we are trying to get what only God can give without God. We are trying to fulfill our Genesis 2 desires in a Genesis 3 world. Now, more than likely, whatever it is that's your weakness I don't know, it's going to be unique to you, or at least that pool of them, they're going to be unique to you. But more than likely, they did something for you at one time. Like you went to that thing, whether it was food or, or, or alcohol or sex or, or, or accomplishment, or, and, and it fed like some deep desire. Like you had an experience with it that really felt good, and it kind of tasted like shalom. Tasted a little bit like Genesis 2. And so you just keep going back. Even though it no longer feels like Genesis 2. Even though it no longer even gives you the slightest hint of the shalom of God, you keep going back. And the further you push in, the more you repeat the behavior. It's the law of diminishing returns, the less pleasure you have. Some of the most miserable people I know 
talk about their lives as partiers. Their life's not a party. It's miserable. Why do we do this, you guys? The Bible uses a very powerful metaphor for this. It's the the metaphor of the broken cisterns. I go to this passage all the time when I'm wrestling with my own heart because it tells me a lot about myself. It's in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to put it on the screen. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah is prophesying against the nation of Israel. The nation of Judah had already fallen and, and turned to idolatry, and Israel had, had done the same, man. They had just like brought in all the idols of the surrounding cultures. They were abandoning God, the covenant God of their relationship. And Jeremiah says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So notice where he starts. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. This is stupid, right? I mean, this is really dumb. This is like insane, right? In the Middle East, there were three sources of water. Living water or fresh water was, was from a stream or a, 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 a spring, right? It was right there. It was fresh. It was good. The second source of water were, were the underground tables of water. You know, like they would dig wells down in certain areas. Now it's a, it's a desert area. And so if you found a good well, man, that became an inheritance for generations. And, and that was a second source of water where you would dig down to the water table and be able to bring up good water. The third form of water was runoff. They would build cisterns, these little things that would hold the runoff from the rain or from other things. It became stagnant. It grew algae. That's where mosquitoes bred. It was the least desirable form of water. Okay, they have forsaken the fresh, the living water, and gone to the cisterns. Well, that's stupid enough, but they're broken cisterns, which means they're completely unreliable. Sometimes there's a little bit of water in there. In fact, the reason you probably go back is the first time you went, there was water there. But you keep going back, and it's empty because it's broken. He's saying, look, be shocked. Be appalled. This is insane. And yet, doesn't that describe human behavior? Doesn't that describe our own hearts? That's the bent of our broken nature. That's what it means to walk in the flesh. We turn from the best to the worst because we're determined to try to get the shalom of God apart from God. We're determined to try to satisfy our Genesis 2 desires in Genesis 3 ways. And so we turn to our cisterns. We keep going back to our works. We keep going back to these things that we've done that at one time maybe gave us a small taste of shalom, but they have long since gone dry. And we keep going back. And we keep going back. And we keep going back. And heaven is appalled. God is shocked. Because it's insane. What you need to know, though, is that this is the default mode of the human heart. 
You know what I mean by that? Like, like when your computer goes completely haywire and, and you have to hit reset, that's the default mode, right? When it comes back on, whatever's there, the default mode of the human heart is the flesh. It is to try to do life apart from the presence and power of God. And when stress hits, and when you get totally confused, and when you're exhausted, you are by nature going to go back to the default mode of your heart. And you will go back to your broken cisterns. Again, and again, and again. And pretty soon you're going back and you already know it's going to be dry. You already know. It's been dry so long. But this is what you do. This is the pattern you've set. These are the behaviors you've established. These are the ways you have tried to pursue the shalom of God apart from the presence of God. So you guys, don't underestimate the power of your desires. Because that's really what we're talking about. You have these deep, deep desires for the shalom of God. And they drive your behavior. Why did you choose the career that you chose? Well, because I wanted to make money. Why did you want to make money? Well, because that's what makes me important. Why do you need to feel important? Well, because that's kind of like shalom. I feel approved. I feel loved. Why, why did you get married? Why did you go to college? Why do, you, why do you dress the way you dress? Why do you? It is because you have deep desires. And those desires control everything you do. And those desires are more important than your behaviors. Because even if you kill, listen to me, even if you kill one behavior that you dislike, if you don't change the desire, it's going to come back in another place. Even if you can kill a behavior you don't like, if you don't address the desire underneath it, it's going to come back. Thomas Chalmers said this, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Let that sink in. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. It is like you are cooperating with your own broken nature to deceive yourself into thinking the broken cisterns won't stay broken. To change your behavior, you have to change your desires. You have to. So if this is the default mode of the human heart, if the flesh is the way we do life because we're sinners, because we were broken with this broken, we were born with this broken sinful nature. We, 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 we all mistrust God, seek to get from God uh, what only God can give in ways that he doesn't give it in places he's not present, right? So if that's the default mode of our human heart, what hope do we have? If the real battle isn't with my behavior but with my desires, how can I win that battle? Like, I can, I can go to war with my behaviors, I can put filters on my computer. I can build accountability systems. I can, I can invite people in to, to hold me accountable. I can make rewards and punishments that help motivate me, to change me. But, but if the real battle's with the desires and not the behavior, what hope do I have? 
Take a look at verse 16. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There is a way to go to war with the desires of your heart. In fact, there's only one way, (laughs) and it always works. It's either working or it's not. And that's to walk by the Spirit. Now, we're going to talk more about that phrase, walk by the Spirit, in a moment. But I want you to catch the, the weight of this statement. Because in this statement, Paul uses a triple negative. Which in English, so in English, if you use a double negative, I don't want no waffles, that's actually a positive, right? So if I don't want no waffles, it means I actually want waffles. So a double negative is bad, a triple negative is just stupid, it doesn't even make any sense right? But in the Greek, in the original language, by using a triple negative, he is making it incredibly emphatic. What he's saying is, if you walk by the Spirit, there is no way possible you will carry out the desires of the flesh. Cannot, would not, impossible to. Completely emphatic. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out So if you're walking by the Spirit, the flesh is powerless. If you're walking by the Spirit, the flesh is completely and utterly defeated. In fact, at the end of our passage, it says that the flesh has been crucified with its desires and passions. When you walk by the Spirit, it's dead. Those desires don't control you. Hmm. That doesn't mean it's easy. Verse 17. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. The language that he's using here is very graphic and vivid language of trench warfare. The spirit is entrenched against the flesh, and the flesh is entrenched against the spirit. There is a war of desires, believer, in your heart. When you become a believer in Jesus, life doesn't get easier. (laughs) A war starts in your heart. The spirit comes in and is entrenched against those broken desires of the flesh. Why? Because the flesh wants to, to live out and experience the shalom of God apart from the presence of God. The Spirit wants to lead you back into relationship with God. He wants you to experience the shalom of God in the presence of God. Those are two conflicting and totally different desires. They both want shalom. That's not the difference. The difference is how we get there. The difference is is, is how do I get from where I am to where I crave to be because those appetites are non-negotiable. I was created for shalom. I can't turn those appetites off. They are there. The flesh is entrenched against the spirit, and the spirit is entrenched against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another so that you can't do what you want. (laughs) Can't just follow your heart. Hey, just follow your heart. You'll be happy. Just do what feels right. You'll be happy. That's actually insane advice. 
Because it, what you're assuming is that your desires are good and pointed in the right direction. So just trust your desires. They'll take you where you want to go. Really? How does that generally work when you just step back and look at most of humanity? When people just follow the desires of their heart, do they end up more tranquil, peaceful, loving, and happy? The people who actually get the things they most crave, like the celebrities of our culture, they are the most well-balanced and happy people I know. (laughs) We know how this ends. You can't follow the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will lead you to your own ruin. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. And neither is Paul. He's saying there's a battle in your heart. There's a battle for how you're going to pursue shalom. And then he says this crazy thing in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Weird statement. So the law, when he talks about the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law, which most of you would be associated, you'd be familiar with like the Ten Commandments, right? Which you could probably list a couple of them, unless you went to catechisms as a kid. Maybe you could list eight, ten, I don't know, but, but do not murder, don't commit adultery, right? Don't have any other gods for me, make no graven images, honor your father and your mother. You know, those commandments. When you're walking by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why? What does the law do? The law channels your desires and limits your behavior. You have a desire for shalom, and you're going to pursue it, and then the law comes in and says, not like that, you're not. I like to drive fast. Every car I've owned has been over 100 miles an hour, even if it only had three wheels. I'm not even kidding, really, with that. There were bad times, right? Anyway, I like to go fast. But if I know there's a speed trap, I'm not going fast. You know why? Because that would be stupid. The law comes in and regulates my behavior. The law comes in and from an external force causes me to regulate my desires. That's what human law does, right? That's why there are laws. Stay off my grass. Don't come in my house. Don't take my money, right? Don't watch my TV in my bedroom because that's my TV in my bedroom, right? There are laws that basically say, even if that's what you think would make you happy, you can't do it. It's an external force that comes in to govern and guide our desires to keep them in check. When you are walking by the Spirit, you don't need the external checks because the Spirit actually changes the desires and the desires change the behavior. When you're walking by the Spirit, you don't need the law because you're going to honor the God of the law because you're going to have your deepest desires satisfied in that God. When you're walking by the Spirit, it's a very different way of doing life. It's not about controlling your behavior. It's not about cutting off this bad thing and regulating this bad thing and building this wall over here. It's about pushing into the transformation of our desires so that we live very different kinds of lives. Think about it like this, you guys. We're all, in a sense, fighting for freedom. We we have a very high value of freedom in America, and, and I would say every human has a desire for freedom. It really makes a difference how you define it. So what is freedom? When you think about freedom, what is it? 
Well, most of us would define freedom as the ability to get what I want, right? What's financial freedom? Financial freedom means I have enough money to buy what I want to buy and have what I want to have and have the security I think I need, right? Financial freedom means if I want to take a trip, I can take a trip. Financial freedom means if I want a bigger house, I can have a bigger house. Financial freedom means that that if my car is broken down and I need it fixed, I can pay the money to get it fixed. I, I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. That's financial freedom. We talk about personal freedom. We talk about freedom of speech. What do we often mean by freedom of speech? We mean I can say what I want, when I want, how I want. I have freedom of speech. So we define freedom as the ability to simply do what we want. The problem is that is a really stupid definition of freedom. Because with that definition, the freest person would be a drug addict with an unending supply of drugs. They could live in in, in a drugged-out stupor until they die from it. Is that freedom? See, the ability to get what you want, when you want, how you want is not freedom. That is, in fact, increased slavery. We look at the drug addict from the outside, and they're not free. All they have are unlimited means to deepen their enslavement. Freedom does not come from from having a lack of restrictions. Freedom comes from having rightly aligned desires. You are not free until your desires are liberated from your flesh, from the insane pursuit of the shalom of God apart from God. When you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit supernaturally frees your desires. His primary area of working is not to regulate or control your behavior. It is to realign your desires. When you walk in the Spirit, the flesh is powerless. Walking in the Spirit is an internal, invisible thing, but its fruit is obvious in the way that it comes out in your life, right? That's where verses 22 through 24 come in. Verses 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, there's that reiteration. When this is what's flowing out of your heart, you don't need a law. You don't need external um, boundaries. You're able to be guided by healthy desires. So like a vine produces fruit, and you know what the vine is by the fruit that it produces, somebody who's being led by the Spirit is known by the fruit. It is the natural result of a supernatural relationship. And it's interesting, when you look at this list, it's all relational. It's all relational. Your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others. The fruit of the Spirit helps you move into the greatest blessings God has given you because the greatest blessings in life are relational, right? Love, The ability to love and be loved. Is there anything better? To know that you are unconditionally delighted in and rejoiced in? Somebody who just loves you and you're able to celebrate that love? It's what we crave, man. There is nothing better than love, and out of that flows joy. Joy is this this experience that is so rare to us. It's contentment. It's being satisfied. 
because my hunger for love is fed. I'm content. And I'm not driven by, by these appetites that are trying. I'm satiated. I'm filled. Love comes in. I feel joy, right? I feel peace, this sense of tranquility with myself and with others. I'm at ease with myself. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I am at peace with others. I'm not envying them or jealousing them. I'm not competing. I'm, 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 I'm at peace. Patience. The patience that flows out of this is supernatural, right? Patience, I don't know, I suppose we can all grow in this, but, but think about it. When you're filled with love, you're just more naturally patient, right? It'd be like some dude who, who just got married and, and, and was walking out of the church just filled with love for his wife, and, and, and he's walking through the kids' area, and he steps on a Lego, and he's barefoot, and I have no idea why he's barefoot, but he is, and he steps on a Lego, which is like the most excruciating thing you can ever possibly experience, and in that moment... Is he completely derailed and focused on the Lego? No. He might hop around. He might say a mandatory word. But his heart never stops being filled with love. And as soon as he can walk, he's like, come on, baby. Right? It's patience. That's not manufactured, man. That is the byproduct of Love, kindness, and goodness, just this gentleness and, and the ability to stop seeing the weaknesses of others and focusing on what makes people bad. And you just see the good. You just, it's not that you don't see the bad, but your focus isn't on it. You're not measuring yourself. You're not becoming cruel and angry and comparative. Faithfulness. Man, what a beautiful word. Think about it like this integrity. We think of integrity as truthfulness, and it is truthfulness, right? Truthfulness is important, but it's way more than just telling the truth, right? A ship needs to have integrity in the hull to be able to to weather the storms of the sea. When something has integrity, it has strength. When something has integrity, it can move from point A to point B without being destroyed. Faithfulness, man, it is integrity, it's fidelity, it's strength that flows from a heart that is filled with love, gentleness. Gentleness is strength held in proper reserve. You have all the strength, but you only exercise what is necessary. Self-control. You know, self-control isn't the byproduct of heroic achievement. Self-control isn't this thing you have to talk yourself into and work into. And we all struggle with self-control, whether it's your diet or your exercise or, or your bad habits or your sinful tendencies. And we're all like, man, I just need to grow in self-control. You don't grow in self-control by working on self-control. Self-control is not the result of heroic self-effort. Self-control is the result of a heart that is filled with love. Because your appetites are fed. And you're not craving what only God gives in places that God doesn't give it. Against such things there is no law. There is no need for external restraint. When we walk in the Spirit, the power of the flesh is gone because the desires of the flesh are dead. You guys, this description of the fruit of the Spirit is the Genesis 2 desires being fulfilled in a John 3.16 way. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is somebody who is filled with the love of God. Genesis 2 desires being satisfied in the love of God expressed to us in the person of Christ. All right, so I want to wrap up with two quick points. Just application. Paul says, um, believer, you need to keep in step with the Spirit. So what does this have to do with our relationships with others? How does this play out in our relationships with others? Our difficult time forgiving, relating, the rest of that has everything to do with it. First of all, you need to walk in the Spirit, not try to manipulate the Spirit. When I first read this list, when I was a new believer and I read through this, basically what I did is I took the fruit of the Spirit and I turned it into a to-do list. Instead of the fruit of the Spirit, it became the means by which I was going to walk in the Spirit. Instead of it being the result of my walk in the Spirit, I tried to turn it into the means by which I would walk in the Spirit. Does that make sense? So instead of it being the result of my experiencing the love of God, I decided this was how I was going to experience the love of God. I would improve in these things. And it became my self-salvation project. It became my self-improvement project. I will grow in self-control. I will grow in gentleness. I'll get to meekness later. You can only work on one or two things at a time, right? So you, you just like break it up and you work on it. But I want you to notice something. The passage says this is the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits. The fruit. These are all one thing. The result of one experience. Deeply tasting and drinking the love of God. They're not discrete behaviors that you work on and improve for yourself. They're not, it's not that one fruit grows sometimes and some other fruit grows sometimes. It is one fruit that results from one being connected to one vine. It means drinking deeply and experiencing the taste of God. So how do we do that? Because that's a whole lot messier, right? It's easier to make a to-do list. It's easier to, to make a self-salvation project. You guys, I've been married for 27 years. And you know what I'm still learning? How to love my wife. I've been married for 27 years. You know what I'm still learning? How to be loved by my wife. Relationships are hard because we are broken. Now, here's the thing I'll tell you. I'm better at loving my wife today than I was 20 years ago. I am better at being loved by my wife than I was 10 years ago. I am growing in this, and I need to keep growing in it. See, when it says to walk by the Spirit, what it's saying really is you need to walk in relationship with the Spirit. You need to be loved by God in the power of the Spirit. You need to actually not just improve your behavior and become religious. That's not the point at all. You need to be loved by God. You need to be moving into relationship. You need to actually be growing in your love for God and experiencing the love of God. You need to keep going back to the gospel, that incredibly good news that God loves you in spite of you. For God so loved you, a broken, selfish sinner, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him, trust in him, would not perish, trying to find shalom in places that you can't get it, but will have everlasting life, the flourishing fulfillment of shalom in the presence of God. Walk in the Spirit. Don't try to manipulate Spirit. And then finally, don't fight to win the fight. 
fight to be won by the love of God. When you're entering into difficult relationships, walk into that relationship by walking in the Spirit. Don't deal first with the person you're in conflict with. Deal first with your own heart in relationship to God. If you don't have your relationship with God straight, you will not be able to straighten out your relationship with the person. Because the central point of conflict between you and them is not between you and them. It is between you and your broken desires. It is between you and God. If your desires are enslaved to the flesh, you are going to use people, not love them. You're going to turn them into broken cisterns, and you're going to resent them. Because at one time, they gave you a taste of shalom, and then you're going to keep going back to that relationship, and and, and they're going to dry up. They're not going to keep giving you exactly what you thought you'd give them. You're going to come to resent them and, and, and even be angry at them. And we call that falling out of love. And all it is is the, the outgrowth of our idolatry. We're trying to look to a person and say, you're going to be God for me. Walking in the Spirit allows us to love people instead of use people. They become the vehicle through which we experience the love of God. They don't become a substitute for the love of God. Because when you put God weight on human relationships, you will destroy them. You guys, a challenging person isn't the problem. Your flesh is. Well, it's your fault I lost my temper. Really? You reach into my heart and flip that little switch? I don't think so. I lost my temper because it was a work of the flesh. Because I wanted something, you didn't give it to me, so I lashed out in anger. That's, maybe you did something wrong, but my anger is not your fault. My anger is an expression of my flesh. They're simply giving you an opportunity to push more deeply into the love of God, to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you want a good marriage? Do you want good friendships? Do you want good relationships with your kids? This is where it starts. This is where it starts. All right, I want to wrap up. I'm going to pray and... Create a little bit of space for the Spirit of God to speak to your heart, to comfort, to challenge, whatever needs to happen. We're going to share communion in a moment. That'll be introduced, but let me pray for us for now. Father, we thank you that you are a good and loving and giving God. We thank you that even though we have forsaken you, the fountain of living water, man, you didn't forsake us. Even though we turned to your creation, and said to our jobs and to our families and to our relationships and to our accomplishments and to our bank accounts, be God for us. You pitied us instead of rejecting us. And you paid the price, Lord. You paid the price that we might come back. Jesus died our death that we might once again taste your life. How insane is it, Lord, that we keep running back to our broken cisterns. Give us the gift of repentance, Lord. Give us the the eyes that, that, that are clear with a sane view. Give us hearts that are responsive to your incredible, infinite love. Free us. Change us, Spirit. Because only you can. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.